Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hey there. And welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true, stories. I'm Stephen, one of your hosts today. And I'm Karen, also back again and excited for this fourth episode of the second season entitled A Fight for Freedom. And I'm Samantha. Yes, we're back with even more stories from new authors and one which you may recognize from our last episode. Thank you for joining us for episode four entitled A Fight for Freedom. An episode dedicated to three authors' experiences with the concept of freedom through seeing what lack of freedom is truly like. Our first piece is by an author named Amanda Donahue. Amanda is a New York City native. She is a recent graduate from John Jay, where she studied English, and she works two restaurant jobs, one of them stealing her soul, the other slightly replacing it day after day. One day, she hopes to have a job in education, helping kids appreciate books the way she does. She is an avid reader and writer, but when she isn't doing either, she's obsessing over Captain America and the like, quoting her favorite book, Looking for Alaska, having a great time with family or friends, or pushing the gay agenda. Thank you, Karen. Let's take a listen to Amanda's piece entitled Sentenced. This piece was written during a study abroad in Tanzania and performed at Iadi Theater over the summer. You're going to spend a month in Africa, they said. Don't starve, they said. Don't eat too many crickets, they said. Don't get malaria, they said. Don't be too gay, they said. Or you'll get killed. I laugh at my friends because, well, it's funny, right? But wait, what do they mean I'll get killed? That night, the artificial laptop glow bounces off my face. Wide-eyed, I Google. LGBT laws in Tanzania, gay rights in Tanzania, homosexuality in Tanzania. Every article I run my eyes through increases the thumping in my chest. Sure, I knew Tanzanians were strongly religious. I knew my homosexuality would be socially unacceptable. I mean, please, I was used to that. But what I wasn't used to, what I couldn't believe, what made me want to yell and curse and kick and spit and throw up was the fact that being gay, being just me, was actually against the law. Really? Deemed a Western disease by many African countries, homosexuality is considered an unnatural act punishable under penal code. Any person who has carnal knowledge of any person against the order of nature is guilty of a felony and is liable to imprisonment? Wait, you could go to prison for any carnal knowledge of someone of the same sex? <laughs> if that was true, what would a two-year monogamous relationship with a gorgeous Latina psych major get you? Later, I would find out exactly what it would get you. Life in prison, 30 to life for consensual sex between two grown adults. And in Uganda, a country that borders Tanzania to the north, the same could get you the death penalty. What if people just looked at me and knew? Should I change my mind about this, about going at all? Would the people we're working with there know? Would they be forced to tell? Would they get in trouble if they didn't tell? Would I go to prison if I got caught? Caught for just being who I am? So you still want to go? My sister Taylor asks me in our shared queen's bedroom. I look to her as I stall. She sits on the bed next to mine, her hazel eyes glimmering with worry. Well, yeah, of course. 
the experience will be uh, once in a lifetime. I fling myself onto my Captain America sheets. Plus, it'll look great on my resume. You know, it'll help me adult properly. Yeah, but like, how are you gonna hide all of this? She motions to well, all of me. I don't know, Tay, I'll buy a ton of skirts or something. I'll put on my girly voice and skip around smelling flowers. I'll be the perfect little hetero the whole time. She looks unimpressed with my answer and I'm not surprised. See, my gayness has been a running joke ever since I drunkenly fell out of the closet. It happened with no plan whatsoever. I'd been in the bathroom drunkenly stress crying and it just blurted out, Mom, I like girls. <laughs> it had taken 18 years and three quarters of a bottle of Jaeger to do that. It had taken getting sick and tired of the lying, the denial, the volcanic mounds of self-hate to do that. It had taken everything to do that. And what had happened? My mom simply responded, I know. You know? What do you mean, you know? Where were the tears? The open mouth, awkward silence? Where was the crying and the yelling? Where are the morality speeches? Though my friends had all heard, all traumatic, all laced with bitter disappointment, fear, worry, and blatant disgust over our big gay futures? Really? Really? I'm so gay that I couldn't even come out right? Of course I couldn't. I was never even in. But that didn't mean I still couldn't do this. Go to Tanzania. I mean, I could, right? I could fake it. I'd try harder this time. As I continue to attempt to convince Taylor and also myself that everything would be fine, I look at my hands, the nails I've bitten short. Crap, do I even have enough time to grow them out before we go? I think of my wardrobe, the boys' jeans I wear every day. I think of the sports I play, the makeup I don't wear, the weights I lift. There's no way I can pull this off. No way. I can't do this. I can't. I say nothing, though, and stick with my answer. I'm going, I tell my sister. Over the next few weeks, I slowly come to terms again with the fact I can do this. I will not allow my preference for women over men to dictate where I can go, what I can do, and what opportunities I can take part in. I won't. I accept my invitation to the project, organize my passport, get my billion vaccinations, and soon, I'm actually feeling pretty good about it. I'm an American, I'm gay, I'm proud, and I will not be grounded to liberal New York City by my sexuality. But two days before I board the plane, two days before I head out to have the time of my life, I hear the news. Orlando gunman attacks gay nightclub, 50 dead. What? A man, gay nightclub, he, Sunday morning, the New York Times. Assault rifle, pistol, worst mass shooting, 50 dead, the air, I, but the worst mass shooting in United States history. I sit in front of my TV staring at the images. Fragments of words and photographs come in and out of view. Friends and lovers carry one another to medics. There's so much, so much blood, I think. These people? were sentenced for their sexual orientation. They were punished with their lives. Here, in a place where boys can wear skirts and girls can wear ties, where two men can marry in front of all their friends and family, where I can love a woman and spend the rest of my life with her, where discrimination based on sex, gender, and sexuality is illegal. With a heart the bloated weight of 49 deaths, the 50th being the killer, I board the plane. I board it, ready to begin my charade, ready to go into hiding. Ready? to guard my life. 
in root, I go over what I've practiced. All your lovers were men. Watch your pronouns, Amanda. Speak lighter, smile more, bat your eyelashes from time to time. And for God's sake, swing your hips when you walk. Give them rhythm. Don't lead with your shoulders. I'm no longer laughing. Not after Orlando. This is all about survival. This is very, very real. We arrive in Dar es Salaam 22 hours later. In the airport, a man bumps into me. I jump. He knows, I think to myself. There is no way someone could be that close proximity of me and not know. He could probably smell it on me. Now it's my turn to pass through customs. Luckily, though, my passport picture showcases a brace-faced blonde with her hair down and makeup done. That girl wouldn't have trouble passing for straight. And that girl would never be found dead in a place like Pulse. But we are not the same girl. Not anymore. The girl standing in customs is tired and wears a ratty t-shirt. This girl could be the target of the next big hate crime. This girl could go to jail. For life. Why are you here? Uh, tourism? What? The customs agent asks. Oh god, he knows. He knows I'm not just any tourist. He knows I'm a gay tourist. Oh, um, safari. I even giggle, trying to improve the act. Sorry. He hands me back my passport and tells me I can pass. Whew. Maybe I can do this. Soon we face a crowd of people looking for their recently landed family and friends. This is Jackson! Professor Madrazo introduces our native Tanzanian road manager to us. A fellow college student, he's our interpreter and our cultural expert. I'm nervous. I forgot about this part. As soon as we meet up with Professor Madrazo, our safe face, our fearless leader, she goes and adds new people to the mix, new people who don't know who I am, who I really am, what I have to hide. They'll be with us the whole time. How will I hide this? On the bus from the airport, I determine that Jackson is polite and kind. His eyes are welcoming. Later, I'll find out that he's way more than a translator. He's here to write with us, to talk with us, and to keep us safe. But how is he supposed to keep me safe if I don't tell him the one fact that puts me in the most danger? How can I tell him what puts me in danger when I know that doing so puts him in danger as an accomplice? More than all that, though, as I see others joking and laughing with Jackson, I wonder how can I expect to forge a friendship with him? How can I become close with someone to whom I'm lying? I started to get a bit braver a few days in. I start asking questions. Yes, it is completely illegal, Jackson confirms. His voice is proper, his English is phenomenal, but his response sounds rehearsed. I wonder how he really feels. Can I ask? Okay, so being gay is illegal? I push, hoping to get a more genuine answer, a glimmer into an opinion. Jackson and I have known each other for a few days now, and I can feel myself falling into friendship, even though that scares me, even though I know that real friends, they don't lie to each other. Exactly. If caught, they could go to prison for 30 years to life. I hesitate. He's answered my question again. And again, I'm not satisfied. I know that the problem is not necessarily his answer. The problem is my question. What I really want to ask is, how do you feel about homosexuals? But I don't ask him that. Because if I do, if I ask him what I'm really asking, I'm actually saying, what do you feel about me? Do you think I'm a contagious Western disease? I don't want to ask him that because I'm afraid of the answer. As the weeks unfold, I'm confused by many things. Though being gay here is considered a Western disease worthy of imprisoned quarantine, I find out that in Tanzania, men hold hands publicly on the streets as a sign of friendship. 
I see it from my bus window several times and I'm completely captivated. In the States, the same would get you a faggots exclamation, if not worse. I also find out that it's completely normal and expected here in Tanzania for same-sex roommates to share beds in hotels and at college. Really? In a place where you could serve life for homosexuality? I, I can't believe it. By our second week, Jackson and I are becoming friends, establishing private jokes, and yet I still haven't told him about me. We're now at our teaching and volunteer location assignment, an orphanage called Light in Africa, which serves as home to kids no other orphanage in the country will take due to their HIV, AIDS status, or severe disabilities. This is the place where children go for their last chance. Mama Lynn tells us stories about one disabled girl who was tied to a tree and a young boy locked in a shed. Another one with cerebral palsy was found locked in a cage. We learn that in Tanzania, it is considered shameful for mothers to have disabled children. And I contemplate this shame with anger, with disgust. It is here amongst all these sick children, amongst HIV positive and disabled and deaf kids, that I almost forget about my own sickness, my Western disease. That is, until I meet Cassie in our first theater class. Shaved head and big smile, Cassie is my rising star. She raises her hand to volunteer to be a writer of a short play. She is always the class clown amongst her friends. They all seem relatively healthy compared to a lot of the girls here. So I know this probably means she has HIV. Given that the kids at this orphanage get decent antiviral meds, her potential virus represents the least of my concerns for her. I worry more about what I suspect to be her other disease, the same Western one I have. The most androgynous of the group, Cassie walks like me, shoulders first. She has a swagger, not a hip swing. Jackson even mentions one day that she reminds him of me. She dances hip-hop with the confidence of American boys and wears basketball shorts underneath her cargoes. Her pink and orange converse are filthy and worn. She wears the same red and white striped shirt most days, even though her house sisters all change their skirts, their jewelry, their blouses. None of them act like her, talk like her, laugh like her. And in turn, I fear for her. On the fifth day at the orphanage, Cassie is by my side, like always, when we need someone to play the dad for one of the devised plays the children are writing. Cassie is the first and only to raise her hand. Excitedly, she jumps up to assume her role as the dad, and my heart drops for her, yet again, in the way it has steadily dropped for her, day after day after day. Day after day that I watch her laugh, make jokes, live amongst these other young women who all love each other, who are each other's family, are each other's sisters. For sure, Cassie's life has not been easy. And it will not, I fear, get any easier. I have never in my life wished that someone was not gay. Until now. Looking at Cassie's bright smile and happy prayers, I think of the way I felt when I realized I was different. I think of the way I felt when I worried my parents wouldn't accept me. Of the way I felt when I read the laws in Tanzania. When I worried I'd be caught, outed, thrown in prison. But my fears, they were all minuscule. Maybe this isn't about me as much as I thought it was. Yes, I'm in danger, and yes, I'm a potential victim. But I live and love in a place where people are fighting, where conversations are happening, where things are changing. And I can, I will, go home. But Cassie? Cassie is home. She can't go anywhere else. This is her home, and I know that her future will be here. I wish I didn't know it, 
But I do. I know Cassie will have to live her life in hiding. She will have to pretend. She will end up forced to marry a man. One who won't understand why she pulls away. Why she's never happy. Why she won't look him in the eye when she says, I love you too. On the last day of working with the kids, Cassie hands me a rubber band bracelet she made herself. For you, she says, in English, her strongly accented voice soft and cautious. If you put this down, she says, you put me down. I stare straight at her and hope my eyes tell her what I can't. That I'm with her, that I know what she feels, that I know what love is too, and that it's not wrong or gross or a disease. I promise, I tell her as I hold out my pinky. I'll wear it every day. She accepts my promise, but I am left hollow. I want to give her so much more in return. I want to take her with me. I want to keep her safe. Safe from the penal code of Tanzania. From the people of this country and other ones who agree with these sorts of laws. From the people of this country and other ones who don't but say nothing. From the snickers, the jokes, the hiding. From the Orlando killers. From the hate, the fear, the danger. I want to keep her safe from all of it. All of it. But I can't. I can't protect her from any of it. I can't make any of it stop. Can't make anyone think or pray or live or love differently than they do right now in this very moment. I can't. Because I don't have that power. I'm just another lesbian putting on a straight charade. Another lesbian afraid of judgment, prison, hate crimes. Afraid of the thought of never being myself. Afraid of the thought that anyone, anywhere would have to live like that forever. While I live in a place where I can at least speak out where I can hold a girl's hand and openly tell her how I feel. <sighs> Jackson walks by me then, and I remember that he still doesn't know my secret. I want to tell him, want to start the dialogue, want to advocate like so many others have for me, but I can't, because I'm still scared. Shortly after we leave the orphanage, I jump when I realize my wrist feels naked. Cassie's rubber band bracelet snaps off my wrist. Quickly, I scoop up the broken pieces and shove them into my cargo pockets of my boy's jeans. I may not be able to keep her safe, may not be able to start the dialogue with her or with Jackson or with anyone, but I'm never letting go. I made a promise to never put her down. Wow, this, this piece, um, I've, heard it I've heard it twice now. What is that? <laughs> it's my reaction. <laughs> I've heard this piece twice, and it's it it just got it got better the second time. I, I think it will get better every time I read it, I hear it, or read it again. Um, it it's just amazing, and we're so glad to have you here, Amanda. Yes, thank you for being here today. Steph, my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, it's it's just like really powerful. Um, where we don't really realize what the freedoms that we have until we see someone who might not be able to have them. Um, so yeah, thank you for being here, Amanda. Thanks for your story. Thanks for having me, guys. You're welcome. Thank you for coming. So Amanda, in the beginning of your piece, you uh, the focus is mostly on you, um, on your on your rights, your freedoms being stripped away, and then the focus turns to Cassie, and to worry about her never having the, her freedoms or rights. So did you always know that? you were going to shift the piece over to Cassie throughout when you were writing this piece or it just happened naturally? Was it something that occurred midway? Well, <clears throat> um, 
before before we even left to go on the trip, I said that I wanted to write a piece about having to go back into the closet because it was actually a concern for me before we left. Like I actually really thought about it like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And um so I I knew that I was gonna plan about writing about myself and about having to go through that, but then when we got to the orphanage and I met Cassie, I realized how important she was as a person in my life and in my way of viewing the world and about my learning experience in Tanzania. And it really changed like everything for me. So like, you know, at first, yes, it was originally supposed to be Mm -hmm. about me and my experiences and this, but then it became about her because she became important to me. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) That's... um, I can see that, um, especially you knowing that you always had the ability, you know, to come back here. You mentioned that in your piece, and but she didn't. She didn't have the opportunity to have these same freedoms to, you know, live. Uh, I mean, to love who she wanted, to live as she wanted, and um, yeah. Um, and it, it was it was very heartbreaking to read some of that, like your your concern and your your the, the your heartfelt feelings for this child. Yeah, I remember, um, like, while we were saying, like, before we were saying goodbyes, like, every single day at the end of class, she would say, like, are you going to come, like, come back? Are you going to come, like, play with us during, like, you know, this hour? And I was like, I'll see if I can. Like, I have, I have class and I have school. So, you know, you know, I, I can't promise, but I'll try. And then there is one day where she was, like, really upset and she didn't really want to talk to any of us. And, uh, you know, I was asking, I was like, like, what's the matter? Like, are you okay? And she was like, why why would I be happy now when you're just going to leave soon? And it was like, ouch. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but then eventually, you know, we would get her to, you know, start dancing or something. She loved to dance. And, um, and then one day I remember telling her to follow her dreams, be a dancer, go to the United States. <laughs> because at that point I already noticed that, like, like, it's it like it hurt like to see the differences between like you know what I can do back in the states and what she can't do here and it was like if if I am right which I you know I I hate I hate to be right about it but if I am I want her to be here where it's safe if. yeah <laughs> mostly yeah. safer safer yes yeah it makes me so it just it just makes me so sad because I look around here literally there's like. We're in a room of five people, and two of them are gay, and <laughs> just like that, that that proportion. And it's fine. It's not something that we think about all the time. It's something that we like. People take, that we know live with so freely, you know. We almost take it for granted. Yeah. Almost. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this piece is definitely uh, op- like eye-opening in that, um, you know, that we w- that we have these freedoms and um, that others don't, and. You know, we just hope, and we always hope that these freedoms can uh, can be extended to them, but sometimes the only way is to for them to come here. Yeah, absolutely. And in the piece, going off of that, in the piece, you encompass this sincere worry for Cassie and for her future, though not letting those reading or listening in this case, not letting them know if you know for a fact if she's actually gay. It's more of an assumption based on essentially like stereotypes. So. Do you feel that if Cassie wasn't actually gay and didn't actually have this Western disease, as you call it, 
that she would still be unsafe for simply sharing characteristics with people that identify as gay as we so often see in western society um well okay that's a loaded question um <laughs> to start with like you know i i hate to uh assume anybody's yeah. gender sexuality whatever like you know that's not cool yeah. but um the way that the way that i felt about um cassie and her characteristics and stuff like that whereas it reminded me so much of me and my own fears that and like my own growing up that it was like but what if you know yeah. it's that giant question mark that no one really knows the answer to and i as much as i want to talk to her about it i can't because it puts her in danger i don't want her to know like i don't want yeah. her to know that it's okay like because once she finds out that it is she's gonna wish for that something more Mm. And she's going to wish for that freedom and that happiness and that like ability to love and uh, whatnot. Um, but I feel like she, I mean, because of my personal experiences there, I think she might get slightly ridiculed for it because like I was, and I, I was a Mzungu. I was a white lost person. That I came <laughs> <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I was at, I was, we were out in uh, Zanzibar and I got called out on being a lesbian by a native, like by like somebody that lives there. And it was terrifying. It was a really scary moment for me because like, I was like, Oh my God, I, this is illegal. I am in danger now. If they know the cat's out of the bag, oh, crap. Like, <laughs> um, so like at, at that point I actually began to feel really unsafe, which is a scary thing when you're literally across the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't even know like just yeah. based on that. But there's, but then again, there's also uh, a um, a pop artist. Uh, her name is uh, Salama, which means safe, mm -hmm. ironically enough. And um, she is, um, I, I'm pretty like. Then again, uh, she, <laughs> the road managers were comparing me to her the whole time, saying you have the same swagger as Salama. And then they show me a picture, and it's like, like here you'd be like, oh, she's gay, like. <laughs> So that, um, but she's loved, you know, like, mm -hmm. be but because she's a celebrity, yeah. you know, yeah. so it's, it's kind she's of like a, privilege. yeah, it, it could go both ways. Whereas like, you know, you don't, we don't <laughs> want to assume her sexuality either, but who knows? So, yeah. yeah. So something that I have to ask, um, one of the central questions in your piece is whether or not you're going to tell Jackson after you, you know, develop this friendship with him and everything. So does Jackson ever find out? Um, about your disease? <laughs> Jackson actually found out while we were workshopping this piece during class. Um, everybody sat around and read it at the same time. And I'm sitting there like kind of freaking out because I'm like, well, this is it. This is when Jackson finds out. This is when he knows. <laughs> he knows about my secret. <laughs> like, um, but uh, yeah, so he found out and he was like really, really touched that I included him in my story to begin with. And um and then he he said he said something along the lines of um it doesn't change the way that he he's like it doesn't change who you are. So like him knowing me without knowing my secret. Um you know, we were able to create this relationship without without it was so it just didn't matter altogether. So we we're actually still in touch. Jackson and I. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. So it's been about five or five to six months since you've been back. Um, are you still holding tight to that bracelet, or 
What? <laughs> All right. Well, when it first broke off, I uh, really did try to fix it. Like, you know, a couple of the people that were on the trip knew how to make those, you know, bracelets and whatnot. So they put it back mm-hmm. together for me, but then it popped off again. So I just like, I put it in one of my uh, carry-on bags and um, now it is in my room sitting in my jewelry box in tiny little pieces. So I'll probably hold on to it for until it like literally disintegrates because, you know, rubber bands do that sometimes. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I think about this frequently and I talk about how much this like experience and, and meeting this kid and meeting all the other kids at all the at the other orphanages and all that other stuff, how they changed my life and how they shaped me to like really check my privilege. Yeah. Like check it really hard. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so um I'm holding on but I think with a looser grip. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> okay, okay. With that, Amanda, we want to thank you for being here today. We want to thank you for answering all of our burning questions and for giving us this piece. Thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you. Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Our next piece is by a new author here at Life Out Loud, Devon. Devon Simmons is a Harlem native who currently resides in the Bronx. He made his way to John Jay in 2012 by way of the prison-to-college pipeline. In his freshman year at Otisville Correctional Facility, his work was selected into John Jay's finest. After his release, serving 15 and a half years, he immediately enrolled into Hostos Community College, where he graduated with honors, becoming the first from the program. He is also a part-time student at Columbia University's Justice and Education Scholars Program. As a criminal justice major and English minor, his goal is to change the narrative of those formerly incarcerated and to promote the importance of education. Thank you, Stephen. Let's take a listen to Devon's piece entitled Holiday. When I open my eyes, the first thing I look for is sunlight. Residing in dark places throughout the years has allowed me to become one with nature. And that I could tell time from the trajectory of the sun. Usually it's hard to see outside through these dingy, tiny windows. But today, today the sun has won the battle against the ground of this place. October is always extra cold inside here. Just like in the projects, they don't cut the heat on until after the 15th, regardless of the temperature. Everyone inside the dormitory where I dwelt for the past 18 months is bundled up in the fetal position under their thin personal state green blankets. Except for me. Except for me. I'm up and ready to celebrate the greatest victory in my lifetime. My cubicle 11146 is practically empty with the exception of a few items, those which I consider my valuables. These treasures consist of memories of my life for the past decade and a half. It's funny that they could all fit inside a 30 by 40 inch net bag. This stuff has traveled with me to most of the places I've been shipped around to like cattle. Those places where I was prohibited from establishing any long lasting relationships. Having to suppress my emotions has made me hypervigilant. But in the next few hours, this living nightmare will finally be over. It feels surreal. Today is the day I've been anticipating since I was 17 years old. I noticed there's not a cloud in the sky today. The feeling of joy overwhelms me, and I refuse to feel sorrow for my comrades I'm leaving behind. 
I mean, that won't do any of us any good. Instead, I decide to make a proclamation to the entire dormitory as I yell out loudly from my cubicle, Brothers, today is a holiday and a reason to rejoice. Immediately, the guard comes to my cube and orders me to tone it down. Man, fuck you, is what I say in my head. But since she's a female officer, my aggression subsides. I decide to test my charm as I went over by showing all of my teeth smiling. I say, yes, ma'am. Finally, the escort officer comes to pick me up from my dormitory to retrieve my release clothes from the package room. I am handed a beaten brown box containing the clothes I will step out into society in. Quickly, I go over into the changing booth where I practically rip the ugly green cold crap polyester pants and shirt I've been subjected to wearing off. It's officially garbage now. I look myself over in my dingy yet new pair of true religion jeans. Wait, they feel kind of tighter around the groin area than I'm used to. I know my man Bob ain't sent me no damn skinny jeans. I heard that's the style now, but I ain't with that. I begin to laugh at myself for even caring what I look like. I walk out of here naked as long as they let me go. Besides, at least I have new clothes on instead of the cheap state dungarees they give out to dudes who don't have any clothes to go home in. I'm a little self-conscious as I size myself up in the mirror. Eager to leave the past 15 and a half years behind me, I ruminate about the deplorable conditions of solitary confinement. Where on some nights, the guards intentionally passed by my cell so I couldn't eat. I reflect upon the heel bruises on my wrists and ankles from the 12-hour bus rides from one prison to the next, during which time I sat shackled in tight iron cuffs with the three-pound lockbox attached to it. The long and heavy metal chain wrapped around my waist always reminded me that my African ancestors were brought to these shores in the Caribbean in the same fashion. Inside the booth, I pose in front of the mirror one last time. I'm doing my best to look cool, to look normal, like I didn't just spend the last decade and a half as a resident of at least 10 small towns, all claiming the privilege of me as a constituent. That which would gain them more in federal and state tax dollars for their county. I wonder if I'll ever be able to suppress the trauma left on me from the experiences of being at places such as Attica, Clinton, Sing Sing, Kasaki, Governor, Five Points, Gowanda, Otisville, and upstate Auburn and Rikers Island twice. But now, now, I mean, this is it. Showtime, baby. Soon I'll be able to see my dad for the first time since my arrest. He has Parkinson's disease now, but I know he can still cook me some crabs. What should I eat first? Maybe some shrimp. Yeah, some real big ones. Not like them tiny shrimp that dissolve once you take them out the can. I can't wait to be able to finally cook on the real stove instead of a metal plate. And once I get my own crib, I could finally start my own book collection. I have a stack of autobiographies, including There's No Future Without Forgiveness by Desmond Tutu and A Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Mandela. 
portraits of Malcolm, Martin, Chi, Barack, and Michelle all over the living room. Even though I won't see her again in the flesh, I know my moms would be very proud. She has to be looking over me, because if, if not, I know I'd be dead already. She must have always knew I was college-bound. Why else would she lie to the Board of Education and say that we live downtown so I could go to school in District 2? I've always heard of John Jay, but never thought I'd actually make it there. I never even stepped foot on a college campus before. I really wish my mama could be here to see it. It's going to be real cool to see all my new friends I've met here as learning exchange students from John Jay who sacrificed their Fridays once a month to come take class with me. At the administration building, I finally retrieved my bus ticket and personal check. This is when the guard informs me that my family is here to pick me up. Wait, what? They're here to pick me up? I thought they was going to meet me at Port Authority like I told them to. This can't be my little sister because I just talked to her last night. Immediately, I become suspicious. But after waiting 10 minutes behind the front entrance of the prison gate, I tell the officer, I don't care who here to pick me up. Take me to the bus station. The officer gets on his walkie-talkie and asks someone to go get my family. Another officer then exits out the watchtower and waves down to us. Hold tight. I'm going to go get them now, he says as he drives off. Why the fuck is these people playing games with me? Who the hell got the audacity to try to surprise me after all these years? The nerve of them. They should have just sent me some damn money. Two minutes later, a gray Nissan sedan pulls up to the prison. The officer nods towards the car. There goes your family right there. Apprehensively, I walk towards the car and see only one person inside. I recognize his face, but I can't really recall from where. Who the fuck are you? I ask with piercing eyes. He smiles and says, you don't remember me? And for a second, I'm upset with myself. You've been in here so long that you can't even recognize who's who anymore. But this dude can't be of any harm because the officers went to go get him, right? The driver informs me that the rest of my family is awaiting me down the road at the depot. He mentions my fake cousin Muff and Aunt Rose by name. <laughs> they would be the ones to stupidly try to come surprise me. I think back on all the times when Rose would bring my sister along with her on these eight-hour bus rides to come visit me. What a sweetheart. I can't even be mad at her for trying to pull something like this off. Besides, how else am I going to get out of here? These assholes too lazy to take me to the bus station. Reluctantly, I put my bag of valuables consisting of legal papers, pictures, books, and letters I've accumulated over the past 15 and a half years inside. Upon entering the car, I try to feel happy. I mean, this is it, right? But instead of the feeling that I thought would come along with victory, with freedom, I just feel awkward. I'm embarrassed I can't remember this guy. Once we pull off, though, I start to feel a little bit relieved. I see myself gaining distance from the prison through the rearview mirror, and a smug smile spreads across my face. I'm out. After driving for what seemed like three minutes, the driver, whose face I still can't remember, says, 
I think I'm lost. He says that he's going to step out the car and use the GPS. GPS? I'm ashamed I don't know what a GPS is or what it even looked like. But I play it cool by saying, I'm going to step out too so I can use the bathroom, which is a lie. There's nothing but big trees and grass surrounding us. Upstate New York is like that. No one in sight either. Yet, through my peripheral, I noticed something going on behind me. It's the car trunk opening. I don't think anything of it as I'm slowly getting out of the passenger side of the car. But then, that's when I see him through the side of the right rear view mirror. I recognize him immediately. Oh shit, it's a setup. Instead of running straight forward into the wilderness of upstate New York, I run over to the driver's side of the car in hopes of returning to the opposite direction we facing since their civilization that way. The driver attempts to grab me, but I push him off. I see my nemesis devil now with a shiny chrome 9mm in his hand. Now how in the hell is this big motherfucker in the back trunk of this small ass car? Two strides later, I trip on the small side of the narrow road. Why can't I get up? The, the wind's knocked out of me and my legs are too heavy to move. I've been shot. But today's supposed to be a holiday, a reason to rejoice. My life is flashing before my eyes as I think about all the things I won't be able to accomplish. How this is what it's all going to come down to. How I'll never be able to see my family again who's waiting for me at Port Authority bus station. Man, haven't already put them through enough? As I start to run, I ask God, how can he let this rat bastard get away with this? When will I ever receive my justice? Damn, I never would have thought it'd end like this. Fucking coward. Is this how my cousin Fred felt? Devon? Angus? Guess it's as the old saying goes. You live by the gun, die by the gun. But mostly I'm thinking, I can't believe I've been stupid enough to think I could prove everybody wrong. How I thought I could make everyone proud that things would be different for me. How I've forgiven myself for getting caught up in this wretched prison system to begin with. A bullet ricochets off the ground, literally missing my head by inches. My medulla sends the epinephrine needed in order for me to rise to my feet quickly and take flight. I leave bloodstains behind me as I make a conscious effort to keep my head down running and zigzags to be a moving target. Now, I know this lane can't keep up with me because at 6'6", 280 pounds, he's too big and slow. But me? I'm in the best shape of my life. The extra cardio and yoga I've been doing in preparation for my release during the past few months has really paid off, and I'm extremely light on my feet. You got this, I say to myself as I hit third gear, and on my fourth stride, I'm running as fast as Usain Bolt. I distance myself from devil within seconds, but as I look at my right arm, it looks and feels as if it's detached and moving uncontrollably by my side as I run. The only thing holding it together is, oh shit, my skin? I now internalize that I only have one arm for the rest of my life. I continue to run hard. I am determined to get out of this situation alive. Today is still a holiday, and I say to myself, a reason to rejoice. I look back and see that the shooter is tripping all over himself. He's out of breath. This fat motherfucker's still shooting at me, but he's off balance. I'm gaining a lot of distance before I hear the driver finally say, Come on, we gotta get out of here. And that's when the firing finally ceases. 
After running for what seems like minutes, I make it somewhere. It looks like a bus depot. An older gentleman is cleaning up the station. He happens to be black and I am thankful. I fear that some racist farmers will come out if they hear the commotion. The man tells me he heard the shots and is calling the police. He asks me to sit down, but I can't. He attempts to calm me down, but I can't. I can't stop moving. My upper body is painted in red and my arm is throbbing. I begin to feel on my body to see where I'm shot. The pain becomes unbearable and I end up dropping to the floor when the stranger says, the ambulance is on the way. Listen, I hear the sirens, but all I could do was nod in response. I'm lying on the ground in a fetal position when the police arrive. They have on those big brim state trooper hats, just like on TV. One of them asks me my name, where I'm from, and what happened. I think I'm still conscious. What's your phone number, they ask. I give them my sister phone number, which I memorize. Then the officer Big Hat says, you're going to be lifted to Westchester Medical Center. Whoa, I think I ain't never been on no chopper before. I then ask the officer, am I going to die? He laughs and says, nah. But for some reason, I don't believe him. You just make sure to tell my family I said I love them, I say as I'm being carted off by the paramedics. Inside the ambulance, I see someone approaching with a big needle, and I think, I think I hear a helicopter. But everything's looking so hazy. Oh, Lord. If you let me survive this, I promise I'll do whatever you say. Doing my best to stay awake is when it dawns on me. Shit, I got 23 hours left to report to parole unless I'm in violation. Damn, I'm going back to jail. Fuck it, I think reflecting on my first hours of freedom. Today is still a holiday and a reason to rejoice. Oh my goodness. The story is incredible. Wouldn't mm-hmm. you say so, Karen? I would most definitely say so. <laughs> I think it's one of my favorites. Yeah, for sure. I love for it. Sure. You know, it's really, truly, it's very different, like something that yes. you, don't, you don't definitely not hear every day. And that's yeah. the point of this. That's the, the, this. This episode is really encompassing of, of a lot of stories that are so different and that need to be told and that ah and, the, the, the and we're giving them the platform to do so i feel like honored i'm like oh my god i can't believe i'm hearing this part of this person's life that would have gone you know unnoticed otherwise yeah. so thank you for being here Devon. Yeah. oh thank y'all for having me <laughs> so some of our listeners listen some of our listeners may not know what the prison college pipeline is can you tell us a little bit about that so John Jay's Prison to College Pipeline was created by Professor Baz Dreisinger in the English department. Um, It's a program which is designed to help incarcerated persons receive higher education. And, um, well, the program is actually expanding. It's kind of changing, but... um, the, the The design initially was for students to take classes like prerequisites English 101 blah, 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 until they are actually released where they will 
basically be given a guaranteed spot in the CUNY system. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that's pretty much the um, gist of the program. Wait, can, um, you mentioned the the meetups. That, I mean, that the other children, that the other children, the other students <laughs> would come on Fridays um, for like yes, the learning exchange. So okay. that's another component of the program. Um, so the learning exchanges happen once a month, where st- traditional John Jay students will come from campus and travel up to Otisville and engage in a lecture with the students that are there at Otisville. And it'll always be a different professor. One professor might be from the the humanities department, then the next session might be a professor from the public policy or the sociology. So it's always different guests coming in. Okay. So I have a question about, as you're preparing to board the helicopter, you ask the paramedic to relay to your family that you love them. And throughout the piece, you mentioned the things your family and friends have done for you. Like, talk us through that support. Like, what has that relationship been like, like with your family? And what's it like now after, you know, everything? So, I mean, I come from a, a dysfunctional family like most people do, mm-hmm. except <laughs> they just don't really acknowledge it. It's like the family secret, right? <laughs> but, um,. I'm not going to say that my family wasn't supportive. Financially, they weren't because they couldn't be for the most part, right? Um, Some of them, I feel, could have shown more moral support. But it came a point in in my bid where I had to let all that go in order to move forward in life. And um, that's why, actually, the book, There's No Future Without Forgiveness, is mentioned in the in the peace because it was profound to me that those individuals in Rwanda could, I mean, excuse me, in South Africa could actually, you know, forgive the people who caused them harm. So I said, Dad, well, if they could do that, then I could do it. I think think that's amazing because uh, some people, they got out of jail. Um, I have an uncle who still holds on to hate to a lot of my people in my family because um, I feel that some way he was cheated and, you know, and it, it, I think it's important to to let go of that, especially when you have people, you know, that, that are trying to support you, trying to be there for you, and you, for some reason, can't let them in for whatever reason. I think that that's a, you know, that, that's a great way to move forward and new thing, uh, to new, you know, for point sure. in your life. Yeah, yeah for but, sure. Uh, yeah, it's important. It's um, forgiveness and it's important to like bounce back and like keep yourself on track. So that's really cool that you could do that. Well, I'm gonna say another thing about forgiveness, which is really profound as well, right? <laughs> um, it's one thing to forgive other people, but it's a whole nother thing to forgive yourself. Yeah. Right. And you have to be able to acknowledge self and be like, "Damn, you know what? I messed up." Right. And you have to really be able to forgive yourself for messing up in order to move forward. So I think that's more important than even forgiving other people because yeah, if, no, you, know, you got to live with yourself yeah. and if you can't live with Never yourself in the mirror for the mistakes that you made, then ultimately you're always going to have a chip on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So how how do you go about writing this piece? Um, was it something that you always wanted to talk about or is it something you know that just came to you one day and it's like, I need to write this down? Well... 
I've been home almost well now officially I've been home two years now, right? Um and it, it really did fly by. I really didn't have I felt that I couldn't concentrate on writing a piece like this because I had so much other stuff going on. Yeah. And I guess it was therapeutic in a way to kinda like put the stuff on paper so I could move forward and just like for maybe sure. for a little bit of closure, like, yo, that happened and that's that. And not for nothing, I have um in particular my 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 English professor, Baz Dreisinger, always on my <laughs> and literally I couldn't write for it. so that that contributed to it as well. Like literally I couldn't write for a little while because I had to go through physical therapy mm-hmm. and you know, I have like I have a plate and eleven screws in my arm yeah. as wow. a result of this incident. So I re- physically I couldn't write. Okay. But um this summer, I, I while taking the course at Columbia, um, I was taking a screenwriting course, and um, this is where the piece actually evolved from. That's really so cool. cool. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. I love that. I love the 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 difference in people's relationships to their stories is very interesting to see. There are certain people, like like myself, <laughs> that like I have such difficulty sharing a story or owning that story. Um, in regards to giving it, kind of giving it away to people in the sense, it will always be your story, but when you when you say it um, on air and in a screenplay and things of that sort, it does become other people's. And then there are people like you that I'm like so grateful for because you take these stories and you let other people kind of share them and you let people kind of have them. And thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 glad you enjoyed it. Um. It's a, it's a sad reality that um, well you know what not for nothing I'm not gonna say that's a unique story because stuff like that doesn't happen, but it was just a little snippet, 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 yeah, of the things that I've been able to overcome in my life, right? And um, I take pride in being resilient because the real story is actually me making it here to John Jay, right? So these are some of the things that I actually went through in my journey in order to actually be here recording this stuff right now. So It's a small part of the bigger picture of your life. We really appreciate you coming on the show. The story is incredible, and thank you so much for being here to talk about it. Thank you. I mean, thank you for having me, and um, thank thank you, Professor Madrazo, for um, um, telling me because she's like, yeah, I went to real. I wanted to be raw. And I, I said, oh, all right. She gets it. So I said, I'm gonna give her something that's real. That's it. <laughs> that's it. So, our last piece is a literary journalism piece by a returning author named Michael Filipino. Michael Filipino is a 22-year-old senior at John Jay, majoring in English and minoring in philosophy. Raised in Brooklyn, New York, he began his academic career at John Jay with an intention of going to law school. However, Michael never thought in a million years that he'd be majoring in English. As someone who did very horribly in English literature studies in middle schools and high school, Shortly after, he began studying literature. Michael's life has changed forever, and since then, he has no regrets about declaring a major in English. Inspired by fiction and nonfiction writing alike, Michael currently is the vice president of Inc., The Quill, John Jay's creative writing club. Thank you, Samantha. 
Let's take a listen to Michael's piece entitled The Rabbit. To this day, he says, I'm still fond of my nickname, although I obviously don't hear it often anymore. It's not because it was funny, but because I earned it, and there was no laughter on the day I earned the name Conillo. I smile. I've heard this story about the day he earned the nickname Rabbit many times before. My uncle and I sit down at his kitchen table, and he pours a small cup of espresso for the both of us. My uncle is an 85-year-old man who, although happily married, still enjoys the company of visitors, even though I only live right next door to him. I take a sip of coffee, and I ask him, in Italian, Patsy, can you please tell me again in detail how you and your brother escaped the Nazis during World War II? He shifts a bit in his chair and waits a minute before answering. Suddenly, he smiles and says, Tutto? Si, I say, giving a nervous chuckle. He groans a bit as he gets up and opens his kitchen window. The cool October breeze gently blows inside. When he sits back down, he crosses his legs and lights a cigarette. He begins with the following. Everyone thought my brother was always braver than me, and my mother and father had always preferred him. My brother is five years older than me, and when we were young, that made all the difference in the world. Oh, Giovanni, you are so strong and handsome, everyone would say to him. Everybody knew Giovanni Velozzi, the pride of Formia. Everyone knew he would be a great man one day. Everyone in the little town of Formia knew me as well, too, but I did not have the same fame as my brother. When everyone in town saw me, they called me Conigio, not just because I had pointy ears as a child, but also because I could run very fast and could react to situations very quickly, even for a nine-year-old. If I was a bit older at the time, and if it wasn't for the war, I probably would have joined a sports team. Well, did people ever call you by your real name, at least? I ask. Of course, but people called me Pasquellino more often because I was short and young. I didn't mind being called a rabbit because I liked running fast and thinking quick like a rabbit. So, when everyone laughed at my name, I just laughed with them. I can hear the nostalgia in his voice, and for a moment, I wonder what he looked like when he was younger. He takes a slow drag of his cigarette, his hands aged, the skin dry, and dotted with dark-aged spots. I ask him again about the day this all happened. Given that he's close to a hundred years old, the velocity of his response surprises me. October 25th, 1943, he starts. He puts out the cigarette, quickly scratches his nose, and begins. His story begins like this. Pasqualino, andiamo, Giovanni says to me as we run back home to our parents after a long morning of working in the fields. We spent the day picking blood oranges from the fields surrounding the Arnici Mountains by the coast, a good two miles away from the Paese. I notice a pathway up the mountains which goes about fifty feet into the hills where I saw a small cave opening. 
Giovanni, che cos'è quello? I ask him, pointing towards the cave. I begin to walk slightly towards it, but my brother grabs me and shoves me back on the path to town. E niente, Pasqualino! Come on, we must get home. As we once again begin walking back to Formia, I keep looking at the cave until I can see it no more. I noticed, however, that the slope on the mountain becomes straighter the higher it gets, and I get tired just looking at such a trek. Pasquale gives a slight sigh. Well, that looks like a hard climb, I say to my brother. Old man Paolo Ribisi does that climb quite easily, with his mistress, Giovanni says to me, giggling. What's a mistress? I ask. He begins to laugh. Even though I was smart for a nine-year-old, there were still some things I didn't know, Uncle Patsy tells me. He laughs at our Brooklyn table, almost to himself, like I'm not even there. So my brother says, Oh, Dio, I've already said too much. Pasquale and I both laugh for a good minute, and then he coughs, which allows him to calm down enough to continue. Once we get back to town, he tells me, the city is bustling right before Festa, for which all stores close for two hours and people go to eat lunch. Now, since Formia is located right between Naples and Rome, it has always served as a crucial trade hub for farmers, fishermen, and businessmen all throughout Italy and even other parts of Europe. Many a passerby and tourist would come to our town and buy fruits, vegetables, and fish. He takes a moment to explain the context. When the war began, less people came to Formia. And when Italy sided with Germany, there were times when people would not be seen in the streets for weeks. On that day, though, there was a good number of people in the city, buying all sorts of commodities. Wow, I say. The war affected the city that badly? Pasquale nods. He continues, We get home, and my mother Rosa is waiting for us. She looks at both our baskets, which are full of blood oranges. Uncle Patsy gestures with both of his hands to look like a basket, a visual for me. These will sell nicely later, his mother told him. He was happy to hear this, he had said. At the time, we needed all the money we could get, he says for emphasis. He smiles again. So Giovanni says, with pride, I found most of them. Is this true? Our mother asks. No, no, I yell loudly. But then I heard the loud voice of my father, all the way from the other side of the house. Well, who's yelling? He wants to know. He comes into the kitchen. He kisses our mother hello, and he says to me, Oh, I know Giovanni is lying, conigo mio. You always manage to get more. He laughs, and he gives my head a quick rub. My Uncle Patsy gestures with his hand and shakes the air horizontally, as if patting his own imaginary child head. Now, via, via, my father said to the both of us. I'll take these to our little shop, he says. You guys can go play for the rest of the day. But don't stray too far from town. I'm getting old. I won't be able to catch up with you guys if you run away. My uncle stops to give more context again. My father, he says to me, was quite the vendatore. 
he could sell anything. But he was not an athletic man by any means. He would often wonder where my brother and I came from. What would my brother's strength and my speed? Patsy shifts in his seat again, and his face darkens a bit. I go into my room to change my dirty clothes, but my door is still open just a bit, and I can hear my mother and father whispering to each other, which was strange because there was a time in which my parents never had to worry about us overhearing their conversations. Lately, though, they did this often, and my mother sounded more worried every time. My Uncle Patsy's smile has now diminished, and he sighs. In that moment, he looks at me. I wished I didn't have such good ears back then, because I heard everything my parents were saying. Though, now, I thank God that I did, or else I wouldn't have been ready. My mother says, Giuseppe, Maria told me that the Germans are close. What are we going to do? Where will we go? My mother began to sob then, but she covered her mouth so my brother and I don't hear it. But I do. She never cried before the war, because she never had a reason to. But since the war began in Italy, and the news spread of the Germans killing our countrymen in the north, and the Americans approaching in the south, my mother cried more. Rosa, don't worry, my father said. We have nothing that they want. See, si, Edusto, but we must not tell the children, Giuseppe. Please promise me you won't tell them. If we are lucky, we won't have anything to tell them, my father said calmly. But if they find out that we've been shipping supplies to the Americans, they'll bomb the whole town. I stopped my Uncle Pasquale for a second, interrupting him. Whoa, whoa, you never told us that your parents did that for the Americans, I said. Well, Pasquale shrugs, you wanted to hear the whole story, didn't you? He scoffs and picks up right where he left off. Oh, don't be silly, Rosa, my father said. How will they find out? No one will tell them when they make their weekly trip here tonight. We've been doing this for months, and no one has said anything. If someone wanted to tell on us, they would have done so already. I could hear the worry in my mother's voice. I know, but I've heard that the Germans kill everyone in a town out of revenge, even if one person is helping their enemies. And Mussolini has given them full permission to do this. Come discreziada. That's all he heard. Patsy's father shushed her, and they went outside for privacy. Were you surprised to hear all of this? I ask, shocked. Well, of course, Pasquale responds. I didn't want to hear all this. I was afraid of the Germans just as much as anyone. But my father was right. If no one tells the Germans, how would they know? But then, I imagine what would happen if they do find out. All the beautiful landmarks of Formia, all the people, even Louisa, all the way from Naples. I mean, what would we do if we got bombed? I tried to not think about this for the rest of the day, but it was difficult. Uh, you know, uh, 
we Italians are superstitious to the point where we even blame bad happenings on thoughts alone, even if it's only for a second. But uh, I managed to calm myself by the time we all sat down to eat dinner. As we sit to eat broccoli rub, dried fish, and some blood oranges we picked for dessert. It's my turn to say grace. En nomine Padre, Figlio, Espiritu Santi. I thank God for all he has given us, the food, the family, the nice weather. But I want to say thank you for not letting the Germans find us out. But I know better. When everyone says, Amen, in conclusion, my father says, Oh, what a good job, Cornelio mio. We eat in silence for a few minutes, but there is obviously a tension, which probably came from me because I knew the trouble behind the smiles. My father realizes this, and so he turns to Giovanni and I, and his smile began to lessen. Ragazzi, he says, there is something you both should know. The Germans are on their way here, and they will check everyone's houses for anything suspicious. They are also investigating people who are supposedly sending food and supplies to the American soldiers. I can see the worried look on his face now. I want to say that I know it is him and mother sending the supplies, but once again I know better. Besides, other families who are not so supportive of Mussolini and his new Roman Empire also sent the supplies to the Allied army. So the Germans may not actually come to our house, I thought to myself. Just be calm, Uncle Patsy's father continued. There is nothing to worry about. Just also make sure to be respectful. My mother gives my father a gesture, cutting him off mid-sentence. Just in case, Giuseppe, Patsy's mother says, tell them what to do. There's a slight panic in my mother's voice, Patsy explains. My brother and I exchanged looks then. For him, it is confusion. But for me, it is the realization that we could all possibly die. I feel a slight chill down my spine and my hands begin to sweat. Still, I say nothing. Not that it would make much of a difference anyway. Oh, that won't be necessary, Rosa. Patsy's father cuts her off. Per favore! My mother cries out, and then she begins to sob. My father sighs, and he looks down for a moment. I am waiting for him to tell the truth, and so this minute seems like an eternity, an eternity in which, at any moment, we could all be blown to smithereens. Finally, Uncle Patsy continues, my father says, if something does happen, you both need to take the sacks of bread and wine and bring it to your cousin's house by Naples. Go immediately and do not come back here until it is safe. Stay there as long as you can. He points to the two new sacks by the living room, which were not there before. Do you boys remember where Bruno and Paulina's house is? Follow the railroad tracks for about ten miles, Mother said. But, but don't go right away. Patsy's father added. Wait a few days. If the Germans are thorough, they may come to the house as well. I don't think that will happen either, but do this just to make sure. But, Papa, 
Where will we stay before then? Young Patsy asks. Anywhere you can go, he answers with a sigh. Uncle Patsy tells me that he remembers thinking that that wasn't a good answer. But he didn't inquire further. Well, why did your father say that? I ask, leaning in, hanging on every word, realizing that there was more to the story than I thought. Well, just in case the Germans killed our whole family, even my cousins in Naples, Patsy shrugs. At least, if they were dead too, Giovanni and I could have probably stayed at their house until we figured something out. But that's a rather extreme thing to say to two young kids, no? I push. Well, what else could my father have told us to do? He was just as afraid as we were of the Germans. Thinking back, I don't think there was anything else he could have said to make it easier for the both of us, Pasquale said. He continues, taking a sip from his small plastic espresso cup. So, after my father gives us these serious instructions, my brother chimes in and bravely says, Oh, don't worry, Papa. I'll take good care of Pasqualino. This isn't a joke, Giovanni, quipped the boy's mother. If the Germans find you, they might kill you, especially if you are seen carrying food and wine. They won't care if you are little children. But for now, Patsy's father cut her off. Non si preoccupi. Don't worry. I wanted to believe that, Patsy told me at the table. I really did. No sooner did we prepare to go to bed, Pasquale continues, did someone knock on the door very hard. For emphasis, Uncle Patsy bangs on the table in front of me, hard. I almost jumped. It was the old man, Paolo Rabisi, Patsy says. Giuseppe, he told Patsy's father. The Germans are here. You have to go. Piquet, we have nothing. You don't understand, Paolo continues, not even whispering. The Germans have discovered us. They're going to bomb the whole town. Run away. Paolo soon begins to run. And then he screams. I run into my room and I open the windows. I hear more people screaming and yelling now. And just a second later, the town's bomb alarm is going off. For emphasis, Patsy makes a sound resembling an alarm. Ragazzi! My father yells for us. Giovanni and I enter the living room immediately. And our mother is scrambling around the house, gathering anything she can carry with both hands. It's time. Remember everything I've told you. Via! Adesso! My mother is sobbing, but I remember her smile to me and Giovanni as we grab the two sacks. I try my best to make an image of her smile as I was afraid I'd never see her again. Oh, my sweet boys, she says. I love you both, and we will meet again. I promise. And with that, Uncle Patsy took the wine, and Giovanni grabbed the food, and they ran fast from the house. I didn't even have time to put my shoes on, Uncle Patsy recalls. I feel the jagged rocks of the streets pinch the soles of my feet. Normally, I would stop and rub them, but I can't, as I'd prefer slight pain than fire. As we are running, we hear gunshots. I stop and I begin to scream, Papa! Mama! 
but my brother kicks me before I can scream loud enough. Shut up, idiota! He yells. We have to run! But what if... Shut up and keep running! He pushes me forward, and we start to run as fast as possible. We run for about eight miles, far away from town. However, we can still see Formia in the distance. Giovanni decides to stop, as he's very tired. I could still run for a little bit more, but I decide to stop with him anyway. I'm afraid that the bombs have hit the town, but I remember. We would have heard the planes pass by. I notice that my brother is worried, and he says, Where are we going to go? We can't stay here. For a minute, I'm not sure either, Patsy recounts. But suddenly, I realize something. We are by the coast. The mountains! I then remember old man Rabisi. I look around, and I notice that we are in the blood orange fields from earlier in the day. I look up the mountain, and even in the darkness, I see the cave opening! Because there were no houses in this area, Uncle Patsy knew that the Germans probably wouldn't come this way. At least not right away. And so, Patsy took the reins. We can stay here until it's time to head to the railroad tracks, he said. His brother took a bite of bread, and then Patsy remembers with a chill. It happened. In the distance, he says softly, we hear the planes approaching from the east. They zoom past us. And the sound? It makes my brother vomit. Giovanni, my uncle pressed right then. I really think we should go up to the mountains. Well, that's a steep climb, but fine, his brother says. I already lost my dinner. I interject again. I suddenly have so many questions about the story I've heard over and over. Maybe it's because I'm really listening this time. Did you tell your brother that your parents were sending supplies to the American soldiers? I asked Pasquale. Oh, yes, I did, he says, taking another sip of cafe. He didn't believe me at first because he knew that other families did it too. But we were both too scared to really argue about it. Though, I think that eventually he accepted that our parents did it too. So, what happened next? I push, wanting to know the rest. Well, he shifts, we decide to wait about an hour to begin the climb up the mountain, and we watch the town of Formia become darker as the minutes pass and people leave with torches. I pray silently that Mama and Papa are with them, but I don't say anything to my brother. We lose track of time, and I fall asleep. I don't remember what I dreamt about that night, or even if I dreamt of anything. The next thing I remember is Giovanni shaking me hard. Pasqualino! Pasqualino! My uncle Patsy reaches across the table and lightly grabs my arms. He starts to shake me hard, replicating his experience. I wake up startled, and Giovanni picks me up and forces the sack of wine on my shoulders. Andiamo! He yells. As I hear the planes circle past the town again, we run up the slope of the mountain as fast as we possibly can, and I don't notice at first that it's morning. We slept for quite a few hours. As the slope begins to become narrower, we hear the whistle, and we turn around just in time to see the bombs coming down from the plains. Patsy raises his hand high into the air. He then brings it down slowly as he makes the descending whistling sound of a bomb dropping. I feel the ground shake before I hear the explosion. 
and I see the fire rise. I regret having the beautiful view of Formia from so high up the mountain, as the whole city is on fire. Giovanni grabs me and pulls me close to him, into a hug. Don't look, Pasqualina! I try to struggle out of his hug, but his grip is too strong. I can feel him shuddering, and I realize that he's crying. I wondered then if my brother really was the brave one out of the two of us. My uncle stops for a minute then, and he gets up to grab a tissue. Now he's crying. I know he's remembering his town burning all those years ago, remembering the pain, the fear. I'm sorry, I suddenly say, interrupting his thoughts. If you don't want to continue, I'll understand. No, no, he says. It's okay. I am not crying because of our city. We eventually rebuilt it. I'm crying because that was the only time I ever saw my brother crying, and he never cried since then. Pasquale regains his composure and continues. We continue up to the cave, and once we get inside, we see that there are two rocks to sit on. My feet are hurting me badly, and when I check them, I see that they are bleeding. Oh, here, I'll, I'll help with that, said Giovanni. He rips two pieces of cloth from his shirt and ties them around my feet. We can still hear the bombs falling, and every time we hear the impact, my brother shudders. We remain in the cave for a few days, and it's not until we eat all the bread that we realize it's time to leave for Naples. As they begin to carefully walk down the mountain slope, Uncle Patsy could see that on the other side were the railroad tracks. They just had to get to them, to follow them, like their parents said. But Every step, he said, came with a sting of pain on his feet, even after the few days of rest. When they finally reached the railroad tracks, they knew they had just a few miles left. Just a couple more miles, Patsy reflected, and then they'd have a bed to sleep on again. But as they walked down the tracks, they heard it, a voice in the distance behind them. Hey, 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 hey! came the call of several men in thick accents. My uncle pauses, maybe for effect or maybe because it's hard to remember. But then he continues. My brother and I turn around, and to a horror, we see the soldiers. Not just any soldiers, German soldiers. We both freeze. There are eight men, and an officer walks towards us and smiles. I'll never forget that smile, he tells me. It was probably the most evilest smile I have ever seen. Whenever I think of this officer and his soldiers, my heart fills with dread. He softly places his hand on his chest when he says this. So the German officer approaches us and says, Oh, buongiorno. How are you boys? His Italian was not very good, but I could understand most of what he was trying to say. Search the big boy's bag, the officer instructed the others. And so they did. Patsy says that two soldiers grabbed Giovanni, who stayed quiet the whole time. They look inside the empty bag and shake their heads to their commander. He shrugs his shoulders and turns to me now. Et tu? the soldier said, nodding at young Patsy. But, as the soldiers come close to me, I realize that 
the Germans can't have the wine. So I yell, and I throw the sack on the ground as hard as I can. Pasquale makes the animated gesture of throwing the sack of wine onto the ground, toward the tiled kitchen floor. I hear a muffled crash, and I see the red wine seeping through the sack. But why did you throw the wine on the ground? I ask my uncle, in shock, even though I've heard this before. Because I was taught that the Germans were our enemies, and even though we Italians broke bread with our enemies, we never shared wine with them. He continued, So the German officer gives me a confused look, and then he says in his broken Italian, Well then, I was going to say, come with us, but if that's how you want to be, then fine. The Americans can have you troublemakers. The officer scoffs, and then they left. My brother, Uncle Patsy remembers, was frozen in fear. He doesn't move for a few seconds, even once the Germans get well past us. Why did you do that? He finally asks, in a shaky voice. Uncle Patsy looks at me. I'd never seen my brother like this, he said. Shouldn't be the other way around? Shouldn't I be the scared one, and he be the brave one? After all, he says, I am a conigio. Suddenly, Pasquale begins to laugh, hard, remembering that day. <laughs> I remember holding Giovanni's hand as we continued to walk, he told me. He was so scared. But weren't you scared as well? I ask him, a bit skeptical about my uncle's recollected bravery. Of course I was, but I tried my best to not show it, he admitted. To be honest, I was more worried about Giovanni than I was worried about myself. Pasquale continued laughing for a bit at the table. I just smiled, watching him remember. So after a few hours, he says, we finally see the house in the distance. My brother was never more excited in his life. Oh, grazie Dio, he shouts. And as we reach the house, we notice that there are three trucks parked outside. My brother began to cry, believing that the Germans invaded the house. But no, it was not them. Look, Giovanni, Patsy had told him, pointing towards the symbol on the trucks. That's not a German flag. Those colors are red, white, and blue. It was the Americans. They both realized. As we get closer to the trucks, Uncle Patsy told me, we see a man standing between two of them. He waves to us and says hello in broken Italian. That is worse than that of the German officer. But this soldier, however, is much nicer. And he gives us both a piece of chocolate. And as he led them into the house, they heard a familiar voice. It's my father, Uncle Patsy says nodding, remembering, smiling. He explains how they hugged, how soon his mother entered the room, how she screamed with joy, with relief at the sight of them. She hugs all of us with such force, Patsy laughs, that we fall onto the ground. And with that, Pasquale once again begins to cry, his voice breaking as he reaches the conclusion of his story. Oh, thank God you two are safe, Papa says. Where did you go? We waited for you for three days. Up the mountain, Papa, I said proudly. 
Whose idea was that? said Mama. Was it you, Giovanni? Giovanni looked at me for a moment and gave a dry smile. My uncle was expecting Giovanni to take credit for the idea. Like he always took credit for my ideas, he said. But instead, on that day, he just said, No, Pasqualino had the idea. It was at that moment that I knew my brother had changed forever. Well, that was a great idea, Papa said to me then. I am proud of you, Pasqualino. Uncle Patsy told me that his father cried then. He began to cry again, and he said, Brave Conigio mio, my brave rabbit, in his father's voice. And from that day onward, Pasquale said, looking me straight in the eye, the name Conigio was no longer a joke. I thank Pasquale for telling me this story once again, and I get up to leave. But right as I get up, I feel the need to ask him one final question about his brother. I turn to him and I say, Pasquale, is Giovanni still alive? He must be ninety by now. Oh, yes, he is, he answered. I spoke to him on the phone about a month ago. He is doing well. God love him. He knocks twice on the wooden table again. Has he ever come here to America to see you? I ask. Only once. On the anniversary of my marriage in 1977. It took him three weeks to get here since he took a boat all the way across the ocean from Italy. Well, why would he take a boat? I ask. Because... Pasquale hesitates for a moment. Because he's afraid of planes. Wow. I adore this story so much. It, it really resonates with me because um, my family comes from a very similar background. Mm -hmm. So well done. Well done telling your uncle's story. I really, Thank you. really enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. So I love how the meaning of your uncle's name changes from the beginning to the end. Um, people, and not because like he didn't really change himself, just because the way people perceived him from the beginning to end, yeah. I really, really like that. Um, but what I love most of all about about this is that your your uncle, as a character, doesn't get angry at this. He just kind of is like thankful, like that. Wow, people are like actually seeing me for who I am, and I think mm. it's so so cute and adorable. Um, so I just have to ask, is this thankfulness still shown today? And how is um, the brother's relationship now? Uh, yeah, he's, he's still the same. I mean, he's a pretty, like, I wouldn't say he's like a happy-go-lucky guy. I mean, he's <laughs> been through a lot, my uncle. And even yeah. after this, he, he's been through some other stuff, like when he when he lived in Italy. But, uh, but yeah, he, I mean, he's, I guess from that point onward, he was like still the same. But, uh, yeah, he spoke to his, when I... Uh, asked him, gave him this interview. He spoke to his brother like a month before that. This was I gave him this interview like a month ago. So in in September it was the last time he spoke to him. And he's he's good, Giovanni. He's he's like you said, he's ninety years old. He's five years yeah. old. He's a, he's an old man, you know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he's they're doing good. 
That's good. That's very good to hear. Oh, that is good to hear. <laughs> so you mentioned mentioned <laughs> you mentioned some superstitions in your piece, and I I think that's a, like a little bit of humor, especially because because I'm Italian too, and like I get it. Like we are very superstitious. <laughs> so I wanted to know a little bit more about that, like in your piece, like um why, why did you put it in there, and like um did you want like it to be like a little humorous? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's humorous, but it's also uh it's kind of a serious thing. Yeah. Like if you ask any any like old fashioned Italian yeah. guy, like they'll tell you <laughs> they'll tell you how serious it is, like yeah. you know like go, go to the horns. <laughs> you know? Wow. The the horns, you know, like they have uh like my uncle, he has uh what's called a necklace and it's the the horn <laughs> yes. the horn the, 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 the it's not even a red horn it's a, it's like a golden yes, horn it's, it's special it's for the demons you know there's a whole there's like a whole thing like sebastian maniscalco this comedian yes, there's like, it's for the demons you know nobody looks at you and cripples your soul like it's <laughs> it's it's like that is, it's that it's, it's really that serious yes, like when i when serious. i first got my driver's license my my mother gave me one of the red horn i was like what am i supposed to do with this just, just in case anyone gives you the eye I was like, <laughs> <laughs> what eye what are you talking about you know he's like you know the, the eye the eye and the i'm eye. just like it's a it's crazy. a real thing but uh <laughs> it's a real thing. but yeah like even even like a, another part where it's like we blame like super like bad things mm -hmm. on just like thoughts alone like that's just the mentality yeah of italians you know it's yep. it's really it's it's like horrible and somebody like ask like what is that for mind your business like uh, it's yeah. uh, like like it's not even like don't worry about it you know it's it's yeah. so it's it is very superstitious but as far as like why i put it in I mean, he's a my uncle. He's a great guy, but he's he's obviously you know he's he's eighty five years old. He's an old fashioned Italian, yeah, an old fashioned <laughs> Italian guy, and who's been through all this stuff. So you know, mm -hmm. the superstition is like is really there, and it's a very profound part of like Italian culture. Yeah, I know. Yeah, my 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 grandfather has been through something similar, and he tells me stories about all the time about Mussolini and like because he yeah. lived in Naples, which is like right next to wow. Him. Yeah, so. Did you hear that story? It really resonated with me, and I knew the superstition awesome. was supposed to be really serious, but like it's so it's so funny. I know you can't it's help so but funny laugh. How serious <laughs> you they can't help but it. laugh because you're Italian. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the creation of this whole story and all of these characters with their little superstition—not little. The creation of these characters with their superstitions and and with all these little personality traits about them is something that's really fascinating. And you did like an incredible job of transporting us there, and you weren't even there. That, that, yeah. that that's what like is so interesting to me about literary nonfiction and something that I've never really been able to do is transporting everyone through something I haven't necessarily experienced. Yeah, someone else's yes, story. yes, through someone else's story. And yeah, so so you transported us through your young uncle and through the other people that he interacts with. There's this powerful moment where your uncle says, my brother and I exchanged looks then. And for him, it is confusion. But for me, it is the realization that we could possibly die. And that line is so powerful. And what was more impactful to me somehow was the reaction of the mother. That got me because it was... It was, it was, I felt that. I felt all the, like, the pain of, you know, d like, of her telling the father, you know, like, tell them what to do in case they know something actually happens. Yeah, that I, I felt all of that through the secondhand experience and through your writing. And that was really cool. So Thank you. what got you to that point where 
there are these great descriptions. So did you like work with your uncle at all? Did you like read some of the things that you like had read? Yeah. So so what were your pro- what was your process like? I just sat down and asked him to tell me the story. I mean, the thing is, I've heard the story a couple of times. Mm-hmm. He said like I've anytime like he would talk about Formia, he would talk about like it would always like somehow kind of segue into this. But the thing this was the first time like I sat him down and I asked him in detail like listen, can you please tell me in detail everything that happened the the day uh the germans bombed formia uh-huh. and he was like okay i'll tell you you he's like you want to know everything, everything. that's why i said like the piece everything uh-huh. tutto like you want to know everything i was like yeah yeah <laughs> so so he told me this like the parts that i had known all the time was like when him and his brother were in the mountain they were there for like three days and then the the the, the most famous part of the story is when the german soldiers <laughs> yeah. stop him and then yes. he throws the wine on the floor because right. he doesn't want to he doesn't want to give it to them mm-hmm. but yeah scenes like this like he was kind of like he knew he remembered everything like my uncle he's 85 years old but mm-hmm. he's he's as sharp as a blade yeah. like <laughs> like he, he he remembered everything which was really like really surprising because honestly like i asked him a couple questions like pretty much everything you see is just like was just like from that day. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't like ask him like eight million questions. Like I was like, oh well, that's uh, that's not possible. Like no, no. Well, the only time that I stopped him was like when I was like, oh well, you didn't tell me that your parents were sending supplies to the yes. American troops. I'm like, I'm like, I, you never said this. He's mm-hmm. like, well, you never asked me about that. <laughs> this so, is so, the whole, whole yeah. story. Yeah. So yeah, so this was like the yeah. whole story. So it was just like we sat down, we had espresso. He sat by the window and he told me the story. Like, <laughs> it's it's. I mean, it was really awesome. You know, as oh, I was like, this is yeah. this is not fiction. Go. Your story like, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your story really ends because, like, my my grandfather doesn't like to talk about it. Like, even when we ask, I kind of like this is kind of inspired me. Kind of like really like sit him down, and be like, so like, what's your story? Because like I kind of yeah. really want to know now, but I know he feels very uncomfortable. So. Hmm. But it did really inspire me, like, want to know what happened. Because I feel like it's very important to know what happened in your family yes. history, especially yeah. going through World War Two. How old is your grandfather? Um, he's about 79. Oh, wow. Still working. <laughs> Every day. Nice. Wow. I don't know that's, how. That's how they are. Yeah, if I know. If my uncle could still work, he would, he would still be working. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate your story and really want to thank you for coming in again. Like it was, it was really inspiring. Oh, thank you. Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I love that you said that your, your grandfather also has a story that he hasn't told yet. Um, yeah, yeah. I just, I, I, I love the idea that there's also another hidden story there as well. That's kind of uncovered a little bit, even mm-hmm. a little bit, um, or at least nudged by this story. Um, and that's why, we do what we do is to you know tell all these stories that would have otherwise gotten lost mm-hmm. so thank you for this thank you for bringing us your uncle's story thank you thank you for having mm-hmm. me yeah thanks Michael. yeah thank you <laughs> that concludes our fourth episode of the season a fight for freedom we're all so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about in creative nonfiction. you can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our web designers. What's up, Sam? Can't do it without y'all. <laughs>
Everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you all soon and good night.